The way the samurai is found in death. Meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily. Every day when one's body and mind are at peace, one should meditate upon being ripped apart by arrows, rifles, spears, and swords. Being carried away by surging waves, being thrown into the midst of a great fire, being struck by lightning, being shaken to death by a great earthquake, falling from thousand-foot cliffs, dying of disease, or committing seppuku at the death of one's master. And every day without fail, one should consider himself as dead. This is the substance of the way of the samurai. Welcome to Kurosawa Worth Watching, where we're watching a Kurosawa film and then the films that it inspired. Today, we're watching the 1999 Forrest Whitaker film, Ghost Dog. I'm your host, and all I ask is that you listen to this podcast and then let me know what you think. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who believes that a podcaster must be willing to die at any time to protect the brand. Well, not, not every podcaster, <laughs> just some podcaster. <laughs> okay. Hello, guy. Hello, Ron. So, uh, wow, this is an interesting film. Um, you know, it's written and directed yeah. by Jim Darmouche. Now, I did not know until I was just looking at it, because I think, you know, he's this, he's like the king of independent directors, right? Doing doing kind of wacky hmm. independent films. And I thought of him as some kind of European guy. It turns out he was born in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. So presumably, uh, I, I didn't actually look it up, but presumably not too far from us. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, that's the next town to the north. So yeah, yeah that's just a hop, skip, and a jump for me. <laughs> yeah, and uh, my history with him, I I only can think of one movie by him that I've seen, and it was Dead Man. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I remember, actually, it was a long time ago that I saw it. I think it had Johnny Depp in it, if I remember Sounds right. Sounds right. But, uh, uh, what I remember about it was that I I found it very, very slow moving, mm. and not a lot happened. And I also think, I'm not certain about this since it's been so long since I saw it, but I think that may have been the movie that, inspired Eric Kurtman's theory that uh, all indie movies are about gay cowboys eating pudding. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember for sure if that was it. I think I, it I hadn't heard been. that before, but having seen a lot of independent films, I can confirm that's pretty much true. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I like about this film is this is a slow film, right? I mean, there's it takes its time and it has these shots and these moments and everything. And I, you know, I, I think that's refreshing sometimes when you get really used to the, you know, John Wick, which like, I love John Wick. And actually there's a, you know, a number of plot points in here that, that it seems like John Wick probably borrowed from, but you know, mm -hmm. that's a, a million miles a minute kind of stuff, right? Where this will oh, spend yeah. two minutes with him just driving around at night or something. Right. And just having, music and ambiance and, and everything. And, and I think that actually works for, for this film. Oh, yeah. And it, yeah, even though it is often slow-paced, I found this much more engaging than I remember finding <laughs> Dead Man all those sure. years ago. Uh, I, this one kept my interest all the, way, all the way through it. I was, well, I won't say too much. I don't want to spoil my <laughs> right. big final opinion, but, uh, but, uh, it kept me interested uh, through it anyway, so that's 
In my reading about this, uh, critics had said that there are some similarities between this film and a film by a guy named Jean-Pierre Melville uh, called Les Samurai. So maybe, you know, we were going to do some additional samurai films after this uh, based on what Peter Tasker told us about. So maybe we should throw that in the mix and see what we think. Sure. I wonder if that one is will be hard to obtain. Oh, that was a funny thing I should mention. <laughs> Since the uh, the the DVD I found and ordered ended up being uh, a Korean DVD, and I think maybe <laughs> it was a little bit shady because some of the words on the box were misspelled. <laughs> but it was quite watchable. But the Koreans subtitles appeared all the way through it and in the you know where there are english subtitles and there are some because the french guy uh, yeah. and there's a spanish speaking guy for one scene the english subtitles it turns out that korean characters are very good at obscuring english text underneath <laughs> them so i may well, have missed one or two minor points but i think i got uh, i got the I essence can of help it all. you out as we we go through it here yeah <laughs> actually i'm surprised at how hard this film is to find uh the only streaming place i could find it was hbo max which i happened to have a subscription to so i was able to use that i actually had the dvd but when i moved across the country to cleveland uh i, th I left it behind i i think i decided and i I don't know what I was thinking because I think I felt like, oh, this isn't that interesting. I don't need to bring it along. And now watching it, I think I was wrong about that. But <laughs> it's perfect for an independent film for you to have the Korean, uh, you know, subtitle experience. <laughs> okay. And, you know, as always with these films, uh, we'll talk about was this really a Rashomon film or or not. And uh, I think there's some interesting uh, interesting things here with this one. Yeah, I, uh, I do think it's related to Rashomon, probably inspired by Rashomon in some way, but uh, well, well, we'll go into yeah. the details later. <laughs> okay, with that, we will go into the movie. All right. The movie starts off with a pigeon flying. Well, actually, it starts off with some text credits, you know, which are un unremarkable. They're serviceable credits. Uh, then we get the pigeon flying, and we get a bunch of aerial views, and I think this might be New Jersey, because I think there's too much uh, uh, grass to be uh, Manhattan <laughs> or something like that. Although it's never... I feel like the movie... I don't think they ever say where they're at, and... You know, yeah. it, it In could fact, be anywhere we almost. See, we see a couple cars. Uh, the license plates don't have states on them. There's the industrial state, which seems to be where this is taking place because a couple cars have industrial state license plates on them. And then there's one that says the highway state, which is tourist families driving that one. So it's kind of uh, deliberately, apparently ambiguous, but... Seems like New Jersey. It's certainly, uh, <laughs> I'll mention later on, there's a, a scene that uh, reminds me of the opening credits to The Sopranos, but we'll get to that very shortly. Anyway, my theory is this is more or less New Jersey. <laughs> and these aerial shots are accompanied by this 
I don't know if it's a jazz organ or a synth organ, something that sounds a lot like an organ, but it also sounds kind of like porn music and not the <laughs> waka chicka waka chicka kind. This is just a different animal, but uh, that's the opening. We see that uh, it's the evening and we're on a rooftop with two big shacks on it. One is a pigeon shack and next to it is a human shack. In the human shack, there's a man in there. He's a black guy, a big guy uh, with cornrow hair. That's all we know about him at the moment. He's reading Hagakuri, a manual for samurai. Um, it's a modern English translation. Uh, and we get a, our first voiceover and a text card, black, or you white on black. It's almost like an old silent movie text card, but this is just the quote from the book. And we'll get these again and again. And this one is about uh, serving one's master, you know, being a samurai that was, they were servants of masters. And it's also about accepting death and even training to one to accept death through meditation. When your mind is calm, that's when you think about being shot by a bunch of arrows or, you know, <laughs> consumed by waves or all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I should mention, I mean, these uh, pieces of text and voiceovers are all throughout the movie. And at least in my part, I didn't I didn't call them out because, um, you know, you just need to watch the movie to experience that. But also, I mean, they're all from this Hagakuri text. And, you know, this was like a 1700s text that also was actually nostalgic in itself because at the time it was put together, uh, the samurai already, you know, weren't what samurai originally were. So this was kind of looking back to sort of what samurai were supposed to be. And obviously this has a huge influence on, on this story. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the various quotes that are chosen, they, they show you little aspects of what might be going through the main character's mind. So it, it's a neat little device. They don't take up a whole lot of time, and he, he reads each voiceover himself. So after the voiceover, he goes out after sunset. He's wearing a black hoodie, and he has, has the hood up to mostly conceal his face, and he's carrying a briefcase. I guess you consider it an attache case. It's hard-sided. <laughs> he's walking the streets, and this is that same music that we heard in the just right after the opening credits. Yeah, and also just getting back to what we said about uh, the pace of this film. I mean, I don't know, maybe half of the film is him either walking or driving and listening to music and us just seeing the environment, right, or people around or whatever. This is, you know, it's a right. film that is really focused on just kind of the environment and where he's at and, and all that, you know? Yeah. In his briefcase, it turns out he has this device that it, it's got a remote signal. You know how they have those uh, TV remotes nowadays that are supposed to, like, detect what kind of TV you have and work mm -hmm. with it? And I, I could never get one of those to work with any TV that I owned, but uh, in theory, they should. And that's what this does to cars. You hold it up near the car door, push down a button, and it tries a few things and after a little while the car unlocks 
Well, not only that, you can start the car with it, and we learn well, later yeah, you can that's... open electronic gates with it. And this reminds me, we haven't gotten there yet in Doctor <laughs> in Doctor Who, but in Doctor Who, eventually they introduce the sonic screwdriver, and that is uh, that's I've what this is. It. Yeah, the sonic screwdriver uh, okay. can open any door. Open, you know, it does basically whatever you need it to do, oh. which is what this is. And it's kind of funny for this sort of independent, very. In a lot of ways, very grounded film. It's kind of funny to have this little science fictional. Yeah, I've got this little device that just does whatever I needed to do at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Although we do, uh, we do later on see him solder soldering a circuit board. So, yeah. so that maybe, uh, maybe he's some kind of uh, unheralded genius whose true yeah. calling should have been an electronics design. <laughs> Probably pays better. <laughs> So he gets the ignition started with that same device, um, and he goes driving, and he, he, uh, oh, this is a car he's stealing, by the way. It's not just a car he forgot the keys I say, this is one of the weird things, because, I mean, he tries to be a very ethical person, right? And he has this whole ethical, you know, worldview of of being a samurai, but he has no Mm -hmm. problem stealing cars from people. And he steals, I don't know, five different cars from people throughout this film. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, he does. He does do some car theft. Although uh, we never see him like total the cars or sell them to a chop shop or you know that. Kind right, of they're stuff. just to he get him just... to where he needs to go. But <laughs> yeah, so if he steals your car, you're likely to get it back in one piece if if the cops <laughs> find it before the bad guys do. The other thing he's smart about in this, they never really call it out, but it's just always there. When he's stealing stuff or driving these cars, he's always wearing gloves. He never wants to leave fingerprints. So I, thought, I just thought that was kind of mm. interesting. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but uh, good, uh, good detail. Right. So this drive he goes on is a long drive, and even though it's after dark, uh, it reminds me of the opening of to Sopranos, as <laughs> I mentioned, because uh, there's just lots of local color, like you know the uh, driving through the neighborhoods, you know the little small businesses mm-hmm. and the old factories and stuff like that. And I think um, uh, Sopranos uh, came after this. Uh, I didn't look up the date, but I'm sure it came years after this. And I think it was pretty soon after this because it was this was '99, mm-hmm. and I know Sopranos started before 2001 because the okay. World Trade Center used to be in the opening. Right, Credits right. That's a good point. They did, but yeah, I, I, there's a lot in this that Sopranos at least could have been influenced by. I mean, as we'll see as we go along, the whole way they treat the mobsters and everything is very Sopranos-like. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely feels like the Sopranos. So if uh, it'd be interesting to look up what year that debuted, because it could be that one influenced the other. I don't know. Pilot was 1997, but it premiered in 1999. So basically exactly the same time as this. Huh. Interesting. So we don't know exactly which came first. Yeah, it may not have influenced it, but if it didn't, they were definitely in this very much the same vibe. Yeah, it may have just been steam engine time for the New Jersey mob, I guess. (laughs) So after this long drive, we get a we get another voiceover, uh, or during this long drive, I guess the voiceover is that about uh, how it's good to learn other people's ways, and that can actually help you become more firm in following the samurai way. Shifting away from the assassin for the moment, we see this Chinese restaurant. And there's an older guy who later we find out he's named Louie. He's smoking outside. 
And there's another gangster guy, t- gangster type guy inside who turned, does turn out to be an actual gangster guy. He's named Sonny. We don't find that out yet either, but, uh, but he's paying a Chinese guy with a big wad of bills. And we never really get follow up on this. I presume this is just renting, renting the venue. Well, but here's something I'm just putting this together now. Some things I noticed in my last watch through and what you're saying here. So he says, I'll need to pay you the rest tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And later on, we're going to find that they have other financial problems. So I think that mm. a background thing here is that these mob guys are really not bringing in a lot of money and they're actually having yeah. a hard time paying people. I think you're right, because there is that the room that they're in later on, which is somewhere else, uh, there's a guy who wants his three months back rent for that. Right, right. So Yeah, they're, uh, their gang seems to be uh, on the skids a little bit, maybe. <laughs> well, and related to that, we talk about the Sopranos, we'll see. I mean, this is the world in which all the gangsters are like 60-plus, right? I mean, there's no young people in yeah. this entire thing. So it feels like the whole thing is just aging and becoming kind of out of date, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's like a club that can't get any new members to join. <laughs> and that, again, it's kind of related to The Sopranos because The Sopranos was also this, as was some of the, you know, the Martin Scorsese stuff. It's this more, I mean, because that's the thing when The Godfather came out, right? Initially, what I've read is that the big mobsters really hated the Godfather and they wouldn't let anyone go watch it and they wouldn't, you know, refer to it, et cetera. But in fact, the Godfather really glorified this life as, as far as a lot of people were concerned. In fact, people in the mob started mm-hmm. to act like people in the Godfather. Cause they, you know, oh, this is, <laughs> um, then with Martin the Scorsese, Sopranos is a lot of that. They're always quoting it. Right. Go right. on. I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. But so with Martin Scorsese's, gang stuff and then with the sopranos it was like no actually these are kind of lower class people you know and it came that provided a very different perspective right and i I think we see some of that here where they're sort of Mm -hmm. they view themselves as as like the godfather but in reality they can't afford to pay their rent nobody's joining they're all old (laughs) yeah yeah and this uh this place that they're gathered in, this Chinese restaurant, you know, the uh, the people in the Sopranos have their various hangouts, like yeah. there's Satriales, the Butcher, and there's a, the Bada Bing Strip Club, you know, various places where they hang out, and they're all kind of kind of low-rent type of places, and uh, this this right. fits in. Oh, uh, yeah, literally the, the main mob bosses we're about to see, you know, their throne room is a trashy room in the basement of a Chinese restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's not glamorous, that's for sure. So Ghost Dog, we haven't formally been told this yet, but the assassin's name is Ghost Dog. Yeah, and we never learn any other name for him, so. Yeah, we don't ever find out what his, uh, presumably Ghost Dog isn't what his mom (laughs) named. Yeah, we only ever know him as Ghost Dog. And he pulls up his car outside a house, and he has another bit of sci-fi technology, which may actually have been a real thing, because it looks kind of like a an old cordless phone that you'd use inside mm-hmm. the house. And what he's doing with it is using it to listen in on a conversation that a guy inside the house is having in a cordless phone. So maybe it's right. just, it is, maybe it is a cordless phone inside, and it just 
tunes into whatever the frequencies are nearby. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, he can hear the conversation. And what the conversation is, is that the guy in the house, Frank, he's talking to another mobster, uh, um, and that other guy is telling him that he's made a big mistake, uh, sort of warning him, the guy sounds concerned. Frank has made a big mistake because he's gotten involved with the boss's daughter, who mm. seems considerably younger. She seems <laughs> to be, you know, maybe early 20s at most. Yep. And uh, and she's here in the room with him. Uh, they're not up to any hanky-panky at the moment. She's just sitting reading, and he's uh, he's sitting on the bed, and we'll, we'll find out more about that momentarily. Uh, but the conversation is that... Uh, uh, this guy is worried about Frank, but Frank doesn't seem particularly worried, or at least he's putting on a front and saying that he isn't worried. Personally, if I had a mob boss angry at me, I'd probably be <laughs> at least a little worried. But, uh, well, I think the deal here, as we'll see, is that he Frank is a made man, so you're not a you're not allowed mm -hmm. to kill a made man, right? So he sort of has a special status, um, yeah. which may be why he's not worried about it. Yeah, could be, but uh, but uh, they're definitely making an exception for him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ghost Dog, listening on his extra cordless phone in the car, we see that his briefcase also contains a gun and a machete and some other stuff. Uh, it's it's packed pretty full of all kinds of useful tools. Back at the restaurant. We three we see three guys who look like mobsters, you know, your stereotypical soprano style mobsters, sitting at a table. An underling enters the room and says, "Louis outside." So one of them, Sonny, goes out to see him. Louis tells Sonny that he's using his special guy for this job, which is this job is killing Frank, and he mentions that the girl was put on a bus earlier. That, that's an important detail because the fact that that didn't work out the way he thought will have some consequences. Yep. Back in the house, that girl is there. She's sitting in a chair watching cartoons, and Frank's also watching cartoons. He's watching while sitting on the bed. One of the weird little themes in the movie is that everybody is always watching cartoons, and these are old cartoons. <laughs> you know, these are... Old black and white, uh, early Most days of cartoons. Them. Yeah, a couple times we see Simpsons episodes. Yeah, that's right. They do do some Simpsons once, but yeah, everyone's always watching cartoons, and that's just one of the little themes in this in this movie. Yeah, there's uh, Felix the Cat and Woody Woodpecker, and uh, some others I didn't recognize. It might have been like a Mac Fleischer, or was that the name? For, yep, yep. You know, that's anyway, where the big that, eyes would come out and everything. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We see quite a few different ones, just little snatches of them, that anytime anybody's watching TV in this movie, it's always some kind of cartoon. And the girl, who's kind of idly looking up at the TV, she's reading a book, and the book she's reading is Rashomon. <laughs> so I'm going to put my stake in the ground here and say, yes, this movie does have a connection to Rashomon. <laughs> <laughs> a connection, at least. Now, 
you know, there is no Rashomon book, although they kind of mention it later. It's in this case, this book apparently, and for I didn't look it up, maybe this book actually exists, but it's a collection of five stories. Now, Rashomon, the movie, was based on two stories by this author. So the implication here is this is a collection from the, the guy who wrote the original Rashomon stories. Right. So she's reading her book, and Frank is sitting on the bed watching cartoons, and he sees in the doorway the assassin, and he also uh, sees a red laser marker on his chest. Mm-hmm. Frank thinks that this is just a burglary. He doesn't connect it to that phone conversation he just had a few minutes ago about somebody uh, possibly whacking him. Uh, He asks Ghost Dog if he wants his Rolex. And Ghost Dog, instead of speaking in reply, he shoots Frank twice in the gut and once in the head. (laughs) And that puts him down pretty effectively. He doesn't have time to ask anything else after that. The girl, Louise, uh, she asks if her pa sent him. Yeah, he didn't know she was there, right? She's like around the corner from him when he shoots right. the guy. When he, when he fired on the guy, uh, he was still standing in the doorway with a with a. Yeah, which is important because, as we'll see, you know, the whole deal is that she wasn't supposed to be here. She wasn't part of the equation. He didn't see her. Maybe he wouldn't have done the assassination if he'd known that she was there. Um, but you know, right. yeah, this is uh, this basically kicks off the entire plot of the movie is the fact that she was there. Yeah. So Ghost Dog, and at this point, you're wondering, is he going to shoot her? Or not? Yeah. Well, and he points a gun at her, and you see the red dot on her and everything. You know? Yeah. And he sees that book on the floor where she dropped it, the Rashomon book, and she says that it's good. The things he says, which comes back later, she says, ancient Japan was weird. (laughs) This actually comes back later in the film. And we get another voiceover pointing out that devotion to one's master is the most fundamental thing for a retainer, which is to say for a samurai. So this has become a key part of Ghost Dog's philosophy. And we get... As we're hearing about the master, that that title card, that text card, fades out to a quick shot of Louis smoking outside the restaurant again. And though we don't know it yet, Louis is actually the master that Ghost Dog is thinking about. The girl, she's this sort of gothic-style girl, right? And she's very emotionless, so she just saw her much older boyfriend get killed, and she's talking about Rashomon, right? I mean, she has no emotional reaction whatsoever. (laughs) And we'll, you know, this will kind of develop as we go along. She does does have a lot of composure here. And uh, I did did neglect to mention that during that phone conversation just a few minutes earlier, um, the guy who was chiding Frank, uh, one of the things he mentioned was that she's crazy. So, yeah. uh, wacko is <laughs> so after we see Louis briefly smoking outside the restaurant again at night, uh, we go to daylight, which is another scene with Louis. Uh, this time it's in his apartment, and his assistant is in there chasing a pigeon around the apartment. Louis tells him that he has a bad feeling about being called in for a sit down. 
Also, we say assistant. I mean, again, this guy is like a 50s or 60s, you know, fat old guy, right? It's not like yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he's trying to catch this pigeon, you know. All right. And uh, Louie is writing on a very, very small piece of paper. It's it's about the size of the fortune in a fortune cookie. Mm-hmm. I guess considering that they're headquartered in the Chinese restaurant, it could just be a fortune. Maybe he's writing on the back or something. But he attaches it to the bird's leg after the assistant finally catches the bird. And the assistant tosses the bird out of the window, which has been open all along. So that that struck me interesting because the bird was evading the guy in the apartment, but it didn't leave the apartment. It, it stayed until it was given its message. Mm. So a well-trained bird. <laughs> then we see Ghost Dog, whose name we still haven't learned. Uh, he's napping on his rooftop. He's just lying down on the rooftop, and it's, it's probably not where I would generally want to take a nap because <laughs> there's bird feed scattered around. There are little spots of pigeon droppings around <laughs> here and there, and the pigeons themselves are just kind of strolling around the rooftop, pecking at the feed and stuff. And he's just lying there taking a nap. And he dreams, and we get a flashback in the dream, uh, just a brief partial flashback of Louis saving his life. And then his bird arrives from Louis, the one that they just threw out the window a little while ago. Uh, It arrives, and he reads the little fortune cookie message, and the message says that he needs urgently to contact Louis. After reading that, he goes back to sleep. So he has a different interpretation of urgently yeah. than most people do. <laughs> and uh, we get another voiceover and text card about uh, how it can be good to see the world as a dream, uh, just as we see dreams when we wake up from them. And then he gets up, he lets out all the pigeons to fly around, and uh, he seems to be controlling the flock. Uh, both by whistling and by waving little red flags like he was guiding an airplane into a slot at the terminal. So we don't really see exactly what he's accomplishing with that, if he's training them or just having fun steering them around. Or Yeah, and I didn't look this up, so I don't know if this flag thing is real or, you know, I have no idea how you control pigeons. But Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Definitely an interesting little scene anyway. Then we see Louis. He's he was walking along the sidewalk in the city, but now he's been delayed by a bratty kid in an upper window of an apartment building. The kid's mom apparently locked him in their apartment while she went off to work, and in protest, he's throwing toys out the window one by one. So. Why Why Louis stayed here and engaged the kid rather than just walking this by? This is a very um, weird sequence. It lasts for a couple of minutes, and he just keeps throwing toys at them, and there's no connection. It's not like they were trying to get into his apartment. It's not, you know, I don't know what this is about. It's just very weird. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if, if it had much more purpose than just sort of a Little slice of life thing, you know, like the guy's late to his appointment with the bosses because of yeah. some bratty kid. Well, that that's true. I forgot that they later say, oh, he was delayed. So I guess that had some. But again, that didn't really make any difference in the movie. Or it doesn't <laughs> seem to have made a lot of difference. 
But while they're out here on the sidewalk, one of his escorts uh, mentions that the girl wasn't on the bus last night, and he's complaining about it, and Louis says she was. Well, we know that she wasn't on the bus, at least right. when the other Frank got shot, so we'll find a little more about that later. And then Ghost Dog goes into Birdland, a pet store, and uh, there's also a video game called Birdland, <laughs> if I remember, right? Um, yeah, you and I once once created a game called Birdland, but also, yeah. and actually, I think that was a good game. By the way, um, that was cute. Uh, but also, I think this could be a reference to you know the movie that that kind of put him on the map was Bird, mm. which he he did with um, <laughs> his name things. Oh, for God's sake! What are they? Uh, mayor of Carmel, uh, uh, Clint Eastwood. Yes, which he did with Clint Eastwood, and apparently that was the film that really, really put him on the map. And one of the things about Forrest Whitaker, now that's that's Jermush, right? Not uh, Forrest Whitaker, or or is no it Forrest Whitaker? He played Bird oh, okay in the movie. Oh, Bird, okay, which I was you were about saying Jermush directed Bird. Nope, nope. Okay. Uh, Clint Eastwood okay. did. And uh, Forrest Whitaker played Bird, who was the you know the musician, he, the real life musician he was representing. And one of the things about Whitaker is he's a very very serious method actor kind of guy. So for example, to do Bird, where he's playing saxophone, he spent like months in a single room with nothing but a saxophone in the room and a desk, so that he would learn how to play it and, and, you know, kind of get into that for this movie. He spent huge amounts of time meditating and just trying to get into this kind of samurai uh, mindset. And, hmm. uh, you know, it's always debatable how much it matters when people do that kind of preparation. But I, I feel like, you know, we'll get to this at the end, but I mean, th this could have been a bad movie. This there's nothing special about the script itself. Anything that works in the movie is the actors and the directing and such. And I feel like mm -hmm. his role, I mean, that's him. And he's he's doing this thing. And, and if it wasn't him, someone else just doing these lines and, and doing this stuff, it would not have been the same film. Mm -hmm. And he brings this quietness and thoughtfulness to it that probably was helped by him going through this process of meditating and you know, really trying to think like a samurai and all that. Yeah, yeah, it could be. I, I would say uh, that he, just off the top of my head, I hadn't really tried thinking about it earlier, but uh, it's hard for me to think of somebody else doing the role. I mean, I'm sure there are actors who right. could do it well. On the other but, hand, uh, if someone said, really oh, there's this, this well. film about a samurai and Forrest Whitaker plays him, he'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> like, like going in, it doesn't make sense until you actually see him do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So he goes into Birdland. He comes out with a big bag of feed on his shoulder, and there's some local guys loitering around, and they say hi to him. So he's he's... People know him. Well, and also the they don't just say hi. I mean, they are you know honoring him, right? And kind of like, mm -hmm. uh, oh, ghost dog, and you know, putting their hands up uh, in a kind of worshipful manner. So he clearly has this reputation. <laughs> Although later on we'll find that he uh, he only has one friend. But uh, <laughs> we'll get to that. He sees a mugger 
uh, sneaking up on a guy in a parking lot, and we think he might be about to intervene. But when the mugger makes his move, uh, the guy, it turns out, knows martial arts, and he <laughs> very quickly manages to send the mugger packing. Yeah, it's kind of it's um, a pretty funny scene. Yeah, because he looks like the, he's this sort of you know doddering old guy or something, but then he just you know he does these uh, round uh, kicks and round stuff. Round kick, yeah. yeah. It's just, Yeah, and then we get a voiceover uh, which concerns matters of great concern and matters of small concern, and uh, you know you you don't. uh, I think it's something to the effect that you can treat matter matters of great concern lightly, Uh, but then another guy said to the guy who said that he said small matters have to be taken serious. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if this, this really means over. anything, but it sounds profound. <laughs> <laughs> so Louis arrives at the Chinese restaurant for his, for his sit-down with the boss and the, the triumvirate of bosses. Before he goes in, his entourage is consoling a man who's outside. It turns out that he's Frank's uncle, and it, he doesn't seem to be especially broken up about it he's just i think he actually says what are you gonna do (laughs) right but part of the whole deal here right is they've had frank assassinated and now they're sort of pretending like oh this is you know we're so sorry this happened etc right so right right which uh, is another thing that happened a lot on the sopranos (laughs) yeah go go to the funeral even though you killed the guy or whatever (laughs) I think maybe maybe the guy talking to Frank on the phone, maybe that was his uncle. It seems like it might have been the only person who would have bothered to warn yeah, him about been. such a thing. Yeah, and I don't remember sitting here somewhere, so I'm sorry if I'm, I'm jumping on this for you. But at some point, Sonny says to Louie, like, you know, because Louie's like, oh, I feel bad. You know, we killed a made man and we shouldn't have done that and, you know, et cetera. It's against the rules. And Sonny's just like, ah, go to his funeral and, you know, uh, know, be nice to everyone. It'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) So Louis sits across the table from the the triumvirate, which is uh, Sonny and Mr. Vargo, who is the big boss, and a comic relief guy who uh, (laughs) um, he's kind of – you know, a little older than the other guys, it seems, uh, and possibly hard of hearing, too. Yeah, because he yells stuff all the time, and he yells very inappropriate things. <laughs> <laughs> stuff we won't be repeating on the podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there's there's actually, this ensuing conversation has, I thought it had quite a lot of funny stuff in it, but uh, oh, I didn't these guys try are great. I mean, they, this record is... It all. Right. This is all pure comedy, right? I mean, each of these people has their own personality and they say these really weird things. And Vargo, he says stuff, he has no expression on his face when he says these things. It's just, yeah. Oh, yeah. And at one moment, he uh, does, he tries to impersonate an elk, but it sounds more like <laughs> a cow. And I mean, there's, I, I didn't put a lot of details into this conversation because I'm just trying to mostly get the plot down. One thing about this movie that I liked about it is there's a lot of stuff in it that's completely unnecessary but fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes there's stuff that's unnecessary and you really feel it. (laughs) This There's stuff that's unnecessary but it's fun just to have it in there. Mm -hmm. 
So one of the triumvirate guys tells Louie that your mystery man fucked up. <laughs> the girl was indeed on the bus, uh, but she got off the bus, as people sometimes do with buses. <laughs> and uh, um, she returned to Frank. And uh, oh, and Frank's actual nickname, his full nickname is Handsome Frank, I think. Uh, which <laughs> which, which may be why handsome. she went to him. <laughs> yeah, well. not, not as... And especially, uh, you know, he didn't have movie star good looks in him, no. although he was in a movie, so who am I to judge, I guess? <laughs> so the girl was on the bus, but she got off, and that screwed up the whole assassination, and now the assassin needs to be taken out, because uh, I'm not sure, they don't explain the exact logic, but they, they refer to the fact that he was a made man, and I think... I think the idea is that if the daughter's alive, she knows that made men are not untouchable, and therefore maybe, I don't know, maybe yeah. she'll think that her dad is going to be in danger, or who knows. It doesn't totally make sense, but it basically comes down to, because she was there, now they got to go yeah. after the assassin, even though they're the ones who hired the assassin. <laughs> yeah, no. So Louis discloses what Woody knows, which uh, which isn't a whole lot. He pays him once a year. On the first day of autumn, he catches up for everything the assassin has done in the previous year. Uh, he doesn't know where the assassin lives. His only contact with him is through birds. <laughs> and he describes the assassin. The description he gives is a big black guy, which is <laughs> entirely accurate. That's mm -hmm. who the assassin is. This, um, this reminds me. Did you ever see um, what's the name of the insult dog? Uh, Triumph the insult dog. Triumph, he, yeah, yeah. He so you can find this on YouTube, or I'll send it to you. But he did this hilarious thing with college students. It was like ten or fifteen years ago, where the college students are all sitting in this room, and this big black guy comes in who's acting very, very gay, and he says a bunch <laughs> of stuff, and then he runs out of the room. And then, you know, Triumph the Insult Dog comes in, and he's asking questions to these college students. He's like, how would you describe him? And they're like, well, energetic. Uh, <laughs> but they, <laughs> they would not say his race. They would not say that he seemed gay. Yeah, tiptoeing around all the uh, shorthand, I guess. Yeah. So in this case, he's like, no, he's a big black guy. <laughs> it's like, okay, that, that answers that. <laughs> Yeah. Although, as we'll see, that's not quite enough. But Well, yeah, there's a lot more to him than that, for sure. <laughs> so, Louis explains that he rescued this guy from a beating. Um, and one of the guys who was beating him pulled a gun on him, so Louis shot him. Initially, the gun was aimed at, uh, at the assassin, or the future assassin, and then he pointed it at Louis. So Louis got yeah. got the better of him. Now I'm gonna say, in terms, you know, we occasionally give gun tips on this podcast for some reason. One of the things you never do is what happened here, which is if a guy has a gun on you, you do not draw your gun. It's called drawing on the drop. It is impossible for you to draw your gun and shoot them before they shoot you if they have a gun on mm -hmm. you and they're looking at you. So what happens here is entirely unrealistically, you know, even though it's important for the movie. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that. If if the bad guy well, is pointing a gun at you and looking at you, do not draw your gun. <laughs> yeah. 
Although, yeah, maybe he has a like a mobster spidey sense that could tell yeah. him the guy didn't have the nerve to pull the trigger. Yeah, exactly. But, but you know, I think I've mentioned this before, right? I mean, cops will tell you the most famous last words are with, all the time. Someone says, "Go ahead, shoot me," <laughs> because you, oh, know what, yeah. you know what happens when you say that they shoot you. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I just saw. I just saw, I don't know if it was a movie clip or TV show clip, what it was, but it, it was basically that situation. <laughs> and uh, and I thought of you when I saw that. <laughs> I remembered you mentioning that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I will try never to pull that on somebody if they're looking like they might be considering shooting me. <laughs> I'll try to, try to take a less confrontational approach. I guess. Right. So... Louis shot the guys who, or at least one of the guys who was beating up the future assassin. Uh, and then never heard from him until four years later, uh, the guy found him. And apparently the guy spent that four years getting better at self-defense. <laughs> Mr. Vargo, the head gangster, he asks if Louis has ever tried to track the bird. Louis says, no, they never needed to. The guy was always real respectful. And Louis isn't happy about the idea that uh, this very, very trustworthy, respectful man he's worked with, whose life he's actually saved, um, now is going to have to be whacked. Right. And uh, he says in the last four years, he's done like 12 perfect hits, right? Like, so he's been very yeah, useful. He's, he's never messed up. And he didn't mess up on this one either. They put him in a situation that uh, mm -hmm. he shouldn't have had to be in. But one of the gangsters, I think it's Sonny, he says, better him than you, right, Louie? <laughs> and this uh, this is important because we'll hear it at least two more times. Louie reveals the assassin's name is Ghost Dog. This is where we actually officially find out whatever we do know about his name. At least his street name is Ghost Dog. You know, now that I think about it, when he came out of Birdland, I think one of the guys mm -hmm. called him Ghost Dog, yep. but it was it would have been an easy thing to to miss if you weren't looking. Yeah, no, it. it's clear. I mean, the community knows him and knows him by that name. Yeah, yeah. So this unusual name gets and and Louis. That's the only name Louis knows for him. So this gets the triumvirate discussing rapper names. Turns out that Sonny knows a surprising amount of fla about, about Flavor Flav. Uh, he's quoting lyrics and stuff. And then they move on to comparing rappers' names to American Indian names. Um, <laughs> man, they're making fun of both of those. And the, and the punchline is that after having made fun of the names that rappers give themselves and that American Indians give their children and so on, Immediately after that, Sonny sends for Sammy the Snake, Joe Rags, and Big Angie. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a funny, funny little joke. But I, uh, I, on a different day, I might well have missed it. <laughs> well, and there's also a little comment in here that becomes important, where that uh, sort of comedy relief guy who just says whatever's on his mind, and you know, is probably deaf. <laughs> he says, in in very crude terms, he says that blacks and Indians are the same. And this turns out to be, right. you know, this is a theme that's going to come back. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> 
So back on Ghost Dog's rooftop, we see him praying. He's got a very simple shrine. It's basically a crate with a couple pieces of ornamentation and a, a kind of Japanese lantern type thing sitting on top of it. And after he's done praying, he practices uh, first with a katana and then with a machete, which presumably is the machete that we saw in his briefcase earlier. And then we switch to an ice cream truck in a park. <laughs> the guy who owns or operates the ice cream truck, he's he's doing a little spiel on the truck's PA system, you know, the loudspeaker system. Uh, but he's speaking in French, so <laughs> not many customers seem to appreciate what he's saying. And when when I first watched the movie, I kind of actually, because again, I was thinking of Jim Jarmusch as more of a European director. I wasn't thinking of as Ohio, et cetera. And I was thinking of this as a European film, so it seemed a little less odd that you'd have a guy speaking <laughs> in French. But watching it through the last time, I was no, this takes place somewhere in America. I mean, they don't, you know, they don't tell you <laughs> where, but it is America. So having a guy who only speaks French in a street truck in America is kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he seems to be doing all right with his ice cream truck. Ghost Dog is sitting at a bench in the park nearby, and he's watching a little group of rappers. They're doing freestyle, you know, where they just sort of improvise rhymes to a, to a rhythm. And uh, a dog has come up to him, and it's sitting there, uh, just got its haunches down on the ground, just sitting and watching Ghost Dog patiently. And a young girl comes up carrying a red lunchbox. She sits on another bench nearby, and she asks if the dog is his. And he says, no, it's not. Finally, he shoes it away. Doesn't even really shoo it. He just sort of says, go on. Then it goes. Mm -hmm. And uh, she sits down over on Ghost Dog's bench now. Leaves her bench, comes over to his. She tells him her mom says that he never talks to anyone and has no friends. <laughs> and, uh... He asks her about her lunchbox. She asks about his briefcase, which, of course, contains uh, several dangerous things. Hmm. So he diverts and says, I asked you first. And her lunchbox contains several books. And the first one she shows him is Wind in the Willows. Mm -hmm. And he's read it. Turns out he's read uh, every one of the books that she shows him, except for the, uh, there's one called Night Nurse that she likes just for the cover. It looks like yeah, a, it's clearly a kind like, of a seedy, sensational, yeah, possibly porn. pornographic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but some of these books are uh, for advanced readers. Like there's the, there's one, I think it's called The Souls of Black Folk, mm. something like that. And uh, she means to read that when she's older. But uh, but he's read uh, he's read everything she throws at him. So he lends her Rashomon. Right, so which is the book he got from the girl when he killed the guy, right? And this is going to be important because this this book sort of has this path through the story. <laughs> yeah, the book uh, has a, has a whole Odyssey, you know, like uh, returning to Ithaca or whatever happened in the Odyssey. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Odysseus left Ithaca and eventually returned there, if I remember right. Anyway, at this point. The girl, whose name is Perlene, her mom calls her. She doesn't answer yet. She asks Ghost Dog about the friends part. Uh, you know, does he have any friends? And he mm. says his best friend is uh, right over there. It turns out that's the ice cream guy, Ray. And uh, Perlene and Ghost Dog go over to say hello to Ray. 
and neither of them understands French, and he doesn't understand English. But he has a book about bears, and even without understanding English, he understood that Perlene was talking about Ghost Dog, and he pulls down the book about bears. That's his comparison to Ghost Dog. They have a lot of good qualities, but they can also be very dangerous. <laughs> a big joke in the movie here, and you know, I think it's debatable how much it works, we can talk about it later, but is that Raymond and Ghost Dog are best friends, but neither of them can understand each other. Right. And they, they get along real well, but even though they can't technically understand each other, what we find out, and it becomes a running gag, is that when Ghost Dog says that he has to go, that he has business to take care of, uh, Ray sort of mutters to himself, and he's speculating, well, he must have business to take care of. <laughs> so yeah. this happens again and again, where one of them says Exactly the thing that the other one just said, neither yeah. realizing that the other is saying. I guess my thing. question in terms of effectiveness is like the tenth time we see this, I'm not sure it's funny anymore, but you know, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah. thought it was cute. I didn't think it was overused, but uh, your, your mileage may vary. It's, I, I didn't get tired of it myself. Uh, okay, good I to know. Say. Maybe I could have used maybe a couple <laughs> less of them. But. <laughs> <laughs> So then we switch to, there's two older mobsters. I mean, all the mobsters are, none of them are spring chickens, but uh, these two are especially old, and they're climbing up flights of stairs to a rooftop where there is a pigeon coop. And these guys are exhausted, right? I mean, they're breathing yeah. heavy, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, it's been an arduous walk up the stairs for them. And they see this big guy on the roof. He's big, but he's not black. It turns out that he's an American Indian. But he does look remarkably like Forrest Whitaker, right? I mean, they chose a guy who, who you know, it was interesting because it was like, oh, it's like him, but he is an American Indian. The other thing I'll, I'll just mention here is there's a, a woman I follow who's a journalist, and she was married for a long time to, uh, you know, Native American, and her daughter is Native American and all this. She said, everybody in the Native American community just refers to themselves as Indians. <laughs> like, you know, it's yeah. again, it's sort of white progressives who want to refer to everybody as, you know, Native Americans, but they refer to themselves as Indians. <laughs> well, that was, that was the thing I heard, like, with the Cleveland Indians controversy. Right. Some, some yeah, Indians overwhelming majority that, yeah. of American <laughs> Indians preferred, you know, American Indian. Right. And, I mean, like me, I, I've never been offended by Minnesota Vikings. I think think it's flattering, but that's <laughs> that's just me. So I can't can't tell other people how to think. But that, I have I have heard that that Indian is not as offensive uh, a word to many as others think it is. So mm. don't know. Actually, come to think of it, I think last I saw anyway, up in up in Michigan, there's the the Chippewa tribe. Or no, the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, like their seal, has both Indian and Chippewa, which they're actually Ojibwe is their like native hmm. name. So, so I don't know. I, maybe they're just uh, more laid back than some. I don't know. So the the <laughs> other interesting thing about this Indian guy on the you know the top of this roof. By the way, <laughs> this movie sort of posits that all over a city, there's all these people on the top of roofs. You know 
with pigeon coops and maybe that's true maybe it used to be i don't know but i I just i'm not sure about that but anyway this guy is similar to ghost dog he is very centered and calm and even them pointing guns at him and you know shooting at one point nothing sort of you know freaks him out he's just he's his own person and it was sort of interesting. And again, I think he really yeah. is supposed to be some kind of mirror to Ghost Dog because he's a very similar character. Yeah, that would make sense, sure. He's not black, so they, they debate over whether they should do something or not. And they, he's <laughs> yeah, not black. Yeah, one guy really wants to shoot him. Black guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they just shoot one of his pigeons yeah. and they, they leave. And, uh, I think he I think he calls them assholes at that yeah, point. Yeah, like white white men assholes or whatever. <laughs> so but but at least he lives through it. So then we see Ghost Dog after hours. It's uh it's after sundown, he's in his shack. He's we see him first soldering a circuit board, and then he builds a silencer for a pistol. Um, you know, it's rather an elaborate device that he assembles. I mean, you mm. can make one out of, uh, uh, much cruder components, but he really is making a good quality one, apparently. <laughs> this all sequence mm. also reminds me of, uh, Burn Notice, right? In every episode of Burn Notice, they would have one or two of these points where they're soldering together stuff or, you know, putting together their trap or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I haven't watched that in a while. I should probably revisit that one. It's it's worth it. I think you watched it because I suggested it to you. Yeah, yeah. I watched the whole thing. Oh, what, seven seasons? Yeah, and I've restarted it three or four times. Uh, It's it's a really good series, yeah. Oh, yeah, very entertaining show. It's actually uh, probably in pacing. It's similar to the the Blacklist, the thing that I'm checking out now. (laughs) Okay, I haven't seen that, too. So then we get a voiceover about uh, marking an enemy on a battlefield. I believe they used the analogy of a a hawk picking out the thing it's going to swoop down on. Mm -hmm. Then it's daytime. Now, I'm not sure. I think think we may have just gotten a little out of sequence thing there because it looked like it was night when Ghost Dog was in his house soldering. But but now it's day. So either it's the next day or maybe Mm -hmm. not. It doesn't matter, though. It's not hugely time-sensitive, I guess. But the, during the day, two mobsters, who aren't the old guys we saw climbing up the flight of stairs, these yeah. are two other mobsters. Oh, but they're, they're not young um, guys. These are still, you know, fat. You know, well, yeah, they're, they're, still, they're still older guys, yeah. but uh, they're, they're a little more fit to climb stairs than the other guys were. They find a pigeon keeper who, he is black, and he's... Kind of a big guy. He doesn't look anything like an assassin, or at least anything you'd expect an assassin to look like. But they shoot him anyway, just to be thorough. <laughs> well, one of the guys has misgivings about it afterwards. He says something doesn't feel right to him. Yeah. But too late now. So we see uh, Ghost Dog just sort of relaxing on a street corner. I think he's leaning against a building or something. And he sees Sonny's car go by. Well, he's like, I think he's, you know, checking out the mobsters, right? He's sort of hanging around, seeing who goes where. I think maybe he's watching, he's watching for Louie because Louie wanted urgently to meet with him and they still haven't done that. So he's, 
And so anyway, Louie is at, at the corner of another building and he's gone behind it to smoke. And he's got a driver with him who's, uh, who's still waiting in the car for him. Ghost Dog comes up to Louie, out of view of the car, holds his gun, his silenced pistol, to Louie's head. And Louie asks if he's going to kill him. But Ghost Dog says, I'm your retainer. I follow a code. <laughs> it, so it is interesting here, though. He does not drop the gun. Like, he, I think he feels like he's at risk. So even though this guy is his boss, who he would literally kill himself for, he's also going to keep pointing his gun at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's not ready to die quite yet anyway. So Louie explains what his urgent business is. He explains the mob is going to whack Ghost Dog, and maybe he's going to, maybe they're going to whack Louie too. Mm -hmm. And Ghost Dog here says, better me than you, Louie, <laughs> which is uh, exactly what the guys in the Chinese restaurant had told Louie. <laughs> well, Louie now says, I agree with you, right? <laughs> I'd rather have you get shot than me, which is pretty funny. But also, I mean, this fits into all of the samurai voiceovers we've been seeing. Because right? this book apparently really is about this and the voiceovers we see, which is as a samurai, basically, you just always assume you're going to die and therefore you come to peace with death. And, mm -hmm. you know... And also, to die for your master is an honor. You want to do that. Right. Right. Both of those items were in the very first voiceover we got, both both those components of the master and the acceptance of death. So that's a, a big, uh, big idea in this movie, or two big ideas, or part of the same big idea that is the, the samurai way, I suppose. At this point, after Ghost Dog says, better me than you, Louie, Louie's driver approaches from the car. He's coming around the corner, so he's not directly visible to either of the other two. He approaches from the car. He says they're late for the meetup, and he adds, and I'm real sorry about this, as he pulls out a gun. And this guy, by the way, is Maroney, who... He put the girl on the bus. Yeah, he was supposed to put the girl on the bus and kind of screwed up and, and all that. So, yeah. Well, he, he did get her on the bus. She just got off again. Right. So, I'm not sure. <laughs> so, Ghost Dog comes out from behind the corner and shoots this guy dead uh, without any hesitation or prologue. And from Louie's point of view, he doesn't realize yet that this guy was pulling out a gun to shoot mm -hmm. him. But he's dismayed because this is a the brother-in-law of one of the other guys in the organization, uh, you know, powerful, influential guy. And uh, Louis says, no, you better shoot me after that because that's, yeah. Yeah, he also, he kind of said, you might as well shoot me. You might as well kill me. He's sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah, in a bad place. Yeah. And uh, Ghost Dog obliges. He shoots him in the shoulder. But it turns out there's a method to his madness because now Louie has an excuse. He can say that Ghost Dog attacked both of them and got away. So after shooting Louie and thereby saving his bacon, uh, Ghost Dog puts his gun away and he has kind of a little flourish as though it were, uh, you know, his, his katana or his machete. You know, he yeah. Does he does this several times in the movie. I think this is the first time. And I'm going to say, so 
they're trying to do this realistic thing, and you know, Forrest Whitaker really studies this stuff and everything. It makes no sense whatsoever that you wave your gun around <laughs> back and forth before you put it away. It just—it's it, really silly. I don't. I don't. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but he did it. He did it very fluidly, at least. Yeah. And then we're back at the ice cream truck. This is another one of those scenes that may not really add anything to the understanding of the movie, but it's kind of fun. Uh, Ray, the ice cream man, he leads Ghost Dog to a rooftop uh, with a view of another rooftop. And there's a man there who's building a nice fishing boat. Uh, it's got even a cabin standing up on the deck and everything. It's, um, I don't know, if you, you haven't played Far Cry 6 yet, I don't think, but the fishing boats that you can you can hijack in that are uh, <laughs> pretty similar to this style. And uh, he's he's doing a good job. It's a nice-looking boat, still in progress. So they take turns asking in French and English how he's going to get it down from the rooftop when he's done building it. But he only speaks Spanish, so they never get an answer to that puzzle, <laughs> or at least not in the course of this movie. There. Well, and it's funny, because this is a question I think about a lot, you know, even with projects that we're working on, right, or this podcast or whatever, which is, okay, this is sort of the equivalent of someone building, you know, uh, boat models inside of a bottle or something, right? Or so mm -hmm. those things like, why do you put your time into something that doesn't technically have any value but is purely an artistic expression, right? So this guy is building a boat on a roof. He's never going to be able to put the boat somewhere else but he's clearly putting a lot of effort into it. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. Of course, it's possible that God told him it was going to rain for 40 days and 40 <laughs> nights. Yeah, that uh, would be useful, be, I guess, in that case. Yeah. But anyway, with, uh, with the viewing of the mystery boat, uh, we've reached the uh, end of the first half of the movie. So I'll hand it over to you. Okay, then. This is funny. We're now at exactly the length of our last podcast. So even though Predestination <laughs> technically had more plot than this, we're spending twice as much time on this movie as Predestination. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, yeah this, I, I think I found this a more interesting movie overall than yeah. Predestination. Oh, I would rewatch this before I would. I mean, I'm not going to rewatch Predestination. Let's put it that way. And I would. Yeah, 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 it was it was fun. I don't think I need to rewatch that anytime soon. Well, this one I don't need to rewatch anytime soon, but I could see myself doing it. Eventually. Yeah, I mean, if, again, a friend comes over or something, and you know, it'd be worth watching. Yeah. So, Ghost Dog now goes to his pigeon coop only to discover that the pigeons have been killed and the coop has been shot up and ransacked. So apparently these guys were basically going up to all the roofs in the city to find pigeon coops so they could try and find him. Yeah, yeah. I was I was wondering how they uh, identified all the pigeon coops, but I guess if they were determined enough, they'd have lots yeah, of ways get, to... Given how out of shape it. they were, that must have been quite an experience. <laughs> So even worse than the pigeons being killed, his books have been ripped up, like the pages are all over the place. But one thing I realized watching this uh, the last time for this podcast is that 
The pigeons being killed is very much like John Wick's dog being killed in the first one. Now I forget. Have you watched the John Wick films? Oh, but the most recent okay. one, but that just came out. Yeah, me, me too. So you know, very similar, right? Because his pigeons get killed, and John Wick's dog got killed, and that kicked off that book. Now we're you know halfway through the movie here, but to really bring mm-hmm. home the similarity is once his pigeons gets killed. He then opens up a secret little container in his floor that has his special gun, which is exactly what John Wick does in the first movie, right? <laughs> he has a, his, his guns are buried under concrete and he breaks up the concrete and gets his special guns out. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't have any gold coins in there, though. And yeah. that, that was really my favorite aspect of the John Wick movies was that weird underground world you know, they yeah. had with all the different yeah. rules. And- well, again, like with everything else, we should do this sometime. But I, I, I think uh, a really interesting thing about that is the first film can just kind of feel like, oh, here's this master assassin guy, right, who goes out for revenge after his dog gets killed. And then the second mm-hmm. film is like, oh, no, there's this whole world that's different than what you might have thought that was hinted at in the first one, <laughs> but it really fleshes yeah. it out in the second one and further. And I also have not seen the latest one yet. Uh, I'll see it when it goes to, to streaming, but I've heard really good stuff about it, which is really mm-hmm. unusual people. You know, the fourth film in a series people usually are not being positive about. So I'm um, looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, and the the first three I enjoyed all three of them, so uh, so I'm optimistic to see the <laughs> latest one. On the topic of John Wick, there was a moment in this movie. It came a little later, but there was a moment where I thought, "Oh man, this is really taking a dire- turn in the John Wick direction," <laughs> but for for different reasons than the death of the pigeons. Right. So, Ghost Dog, you know. Actually, it's kind of funny because his the floorboards, it's sort of like, um, what's that game you can do where you move around the little tiles to open up a space and then, you know, move things around until you can solve the puzzle? Oh, just like a sliding block puzzle, yes. sliding tile puzzle. So his floorboards like are four like that, four right? right? There's, right. The key is in one space under there and then you move around some little blocks and then the, the you know... You will use the key to open a lock and then get to his case that has his special gun in it. There's that long floorboard that had the key under it, and then you slide that into a different position, and you can slide the tiny little block tile down that lets him, or, or, no, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he gets out a gun that's either a sniper rifle or a regular rifle. We can't really tell what it is at this point, but it's got, you know, it looks like it's a serious gun. Then... There's one pigeon that survived, you know, all these pigeons got killed and this pigeon that survived comes in and like lands on his chest and, and coos at him. And he says, yes, you can help me. So apparently he's able to talk Uh to pigeons (laughs) and uh, he sends this pigeon out on a mission and, you know, we see it flying around for a bit and we'll see how that, what that comes to. And then at night we see Ghost Dog walking along with two cases now. I mean, he's always walking around with one, but now he has two. And then we switch to Vargo and he's watching a weird Felix the Cat cartoon. As we said, everybody's always watching cartoons in this. <laughs> and we kind of pull out and see that this is, 
it must be like a room in that Chinese restaurant or something, but it's a large room and all the gangsters are hanging out and Vargo's watching his stuff on TV. And this is where you mentioned earlier, landlord comes in complaining that they haven't paid their rent for three months. So, you know, this is not a a healthy crime family (laughs) if they can't pay their rent. Um, Yeah, what's the point of doing crime if it's not going to make you rich? And also that the landlord is not scared of them to to say this to them, right? I mean, if they were truly a powerful family at this point, the landlord wouldn't be coming in and, and bugging them, right? Yeah, either either he knows who they are and he's not afraid, or they're just, you know, not that impressive that he would know who they are. <laughs> right. So now Sonny, you know, Sonny and Louie are there, and Sonny comes to Louie and says he doesn't believe his story about how, you know, Ghost Dog attacked both him and, what's his name? Oh, Marini. And he says, oh, Marini was my son-in-law. So, you know, okay, everybody's related to everybody <laughs> in this film and <laughs> in the mob world. And Louis, you know, his arm is in a sling. He points out that he got shot, which is a pretty good point. So, uh, you know, pretty good defense. Yeah, although that is, uh, I think that's kind of a trope in uh you know, TV and movies, uh, they used it in Better Call Saul, too, which I watched recently, where uh, one guy who's actually in on the whole thing ends up getting injured to persuade the others that he wasn't in on the whole thing. I mean, that's that comes up in a lot of places. So <laughs> it's a time-honored uh, tradition. Yep. So Sonny now tells a couple of guys to get cars out of the garage so that in the morning... They can take Vargo to his castle in the woods. Meanwhile, Ghost Dog's last remaining pigeon, the one he, you know, said could do a thing for him, flies into the room. Uh oh. <laughs> and one of the things, uh, just plot wise, makes no sense. Like, uh, I think a, you know, a pigeon, you can train it to fly back and forth between two points. How would this pigeon know to fly to a random, you know, Chinese restaurant for this? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's obvious that Ghost Dog told him where to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they capture the pigeon and get the message off its leg. And the message says, if a samurai's head were to be suddenly cut off, he should still be able to perform one more action with certainty. <laughs> and now Vargo, who up to now has been very kind of spacey and, you know, emotionless, he now seems sort of very present and he says this is the poetry of war so he seems to understand mm-hmm. it very much so we see ghost dog still walking at night and he gets to a locked fence and he uses i don't know what but some kind of freezing spray on the lock and then he uses the hammer to to break it open i mean it's mm-hmm. not quite you know dw40 will make things cold but not as much as wd40 yeah okay <laughs> But so it's sort of a you know yeah WD forty on on steroids or something that allows him to yeah. freeze this lock. Well, I know they've got uh, videos on YouTube where they get tanks of liquid nitrogen and they drop stuff into them, and uh, <laughs> I haven't watched a lot of them, but I can make things very brittle. So I don't yeah, know if so, it can do that. So to maybe a he had a can lock, of but, liquid nitrogen. I'm not sure how that works, but okay. <laughs> Then he uses his handy electric electronic car unlocker thingy <laughs> to steal a car. So, again, always useful to have one of those around. And as he always does when he steals a car, he then puts in a, a music CD. And he spends several minutes driving along 
watching the nightlife. And again, you know, it'll be hard to tell from our commentary, but a lot of this film was these sort of, you know, taking time to do these different shots and, and things. And I, I think it really, you know, sets the mood of the film uh, in a way that you had to watch it to kind of experience. Yeah, you know, a lot of the time I complain about movies being too long, like uh, this could have been cut down from two hours to an hour and a half. And technically this could have been cut down that way. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. about two, two hours, just a few minutes under that. Technically you could have cut it down, but I... I can't think of any moments where I was sitting there, like, ready to sigh and say, all right, get on with yeah, it. Yeah, no. Mean, I, even just, even the slow parts are compelling to watch in their own way. And, yeah. Uh, so, that's uh, not something every movie achieves for me. So, <laughs> good job. And And I think that's very much what... It, I remember reacting to Dead Man hmm. as, or in the way I remember reacting to Dead Man, waiting, waiting for something to happen. And uh, maybe if I saw it today, uh, having become a little more sophisticated <laughs> in movie watching, uh, maybe I wouldn't feel that way now. But uh, I did at the time, anyway. <laughs> So, yes, uh, Ghost Dog drives along and, until he comes across a hooker and a guy, a big guy in a suit. <laughs> he, again, this is where, for all his morals, he has no problem with, you know, various forms of theft. So he gets out and points his gun at them and takes them into an alley and he takes all their clothes. And he takes the woman's clothes, which he's not going to use, but it's just for the visual joke that when the two of them walk out of the alley, she's in her underwear and she's, you know, a, a bosomy woman. So I think that it was just a nice, you know, they just wanted that kind of shot. <laughs> but he, yeah, he really just needed the guy's clothes. But we don't know why yet. Then it's morning and he's still driving, but now he's out in the countryside. And he stops in a restaurant parking lot and changes into the suit that he stole, which happens to fit him very well. So that's convenient. And then while this family is sitting at a picnic bench about 10 feet away, he's he switches his license plates with theirs. I'm thinking, I, I think someone in the family might have noticed it sitting there with a screwdriver taking their license plate off, but okay. <laughs> yeah, that was um, that was a little bit risky, although, I mean, there wasn't really much they could have done if they No, but, you know, they don't even but... notice, right? That's <laughs> just funny. Yeah. Uh, now we but see. they were all chatting and having fun. So yeah. They were lost in their own little world. It happens. Next, we see him with the rifle, which really does seem to be at this point a sniper rifle, because he's sort of he's outside of what was referred to as Vargo's Castle, which is literally a pretty big home, you know, in the woods here, in castle sort of form, and he is sighting all of the you know gangsters who are outside, uh, scoping, you know, eyeing them with the scope, seeing who's there. Meanwhile, we see Vargo and his daughter in his car, and he's watching a Woody Woodpecker cartoon. And there's some kind of on-the-nose stuff here, because earlier, you know, just 30 seconds earlier, we saw a ghost dog watching a woodpecker, and then we see Vargo watching Woody Woodpecker, and it's like, oh, okay. Um, 
But the car drives up to the building and Ghost Dog, you know, Vargo gets out and Ghost Dog has him targeted. And even to make it easier, Vargo like spreads out his arms. He's talking to someone. He spreads out his arms. So it's like <laughs> you've got the perfect shot here, right? <laughs> but and I yeah. think this is really funny because all of a sudden Ghost Dog's view through the through the scope goes black because a bird lands on the barrel in front of the scope and then he can't see anything. <laughs> and it's really pretty funny and kind of appropriate to the film. Yeah, he's got some kind of bird magnetism. That's yeah. how he told the bird where to fly to, uh, well, for, uh, right. for Vargo. It, it reminded me, uh, just just to mm-hmm. harken back to one of our previous movies of... Uh, Remember in 9 to 5 and Lily Tomlin's fantasy, she's like Snow White and the birds are flying and then landing <laughs> on her shoulder and all that stuff. It reminded me of that. Okay, not a, not a connection <laughs> I would have made, but I, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, him being Ghost Dog, he doesn't get, like, upset or pissed off. He's actually pretty clearly amused by the idea that this bird messed up his shot, right? But yeah. he actually says, okay, time for plan B. <laughs> and we get some samurai quote about, you know, you have to take the moment and rush in and not be subtle. So he drives up to the gate. And one thing uh, that becomes important in a moment here is on the gate, there's a for sale sign, which also, again, I mean, these are big time mobsters and, you know, the guy's castle in the woods is for sale. So that's, that's a sign. And now he uses his magic electronic unlocker device to open the gate so from remotely so okay that's that's nice if you can do that <laughs> yeah well you know i wanted to mention i i don't know where it was in the movie and i didn't notice it when i was re-watching the part that i took notes on but somewhere in the movie there's a for sale sign that says alighieri realty mm-hmm. Um, and that was Dante's last name. So yeah. that may be like some did, kind of illusion. I noticed to- it and I, yeah, I wondered, I mean, yeah, that's certainly possible. Yeah. So he drives up and, and he's in this nice suit now and he tells the gangsters out front that he's Bob Solo, which of course I couldn't help but think of Han Solo. I don't know. There. Uh, <laughs> and he says he's in real estate and he's found a buyer for the estate. So the, so the fact that we just saw the for sale sign, you know, comes back here. Yeah. So one of the guys goes inside to check out his story. And while he does that, Ghost Dog shoots the guys outside and he heads in with his two pistols that have the silent, you know, the custom silencers that he created. And uh, he kills a whole lot of old gangsters. <laughs> you know, he's like just switching back and forth, killing people left and right. Yeah, and this, this is where John Wick popped into my head when yeah. I was first watching Yeah, it was probably the closest to that, yeah. <laughs> and they do these little very slight slow-motion things, so he'll turn and shoot somebody, and there's just a little bit of, you know, duplication of the image or something. Hmm. Then he goes into a back room, and Vargo's daughter is there watching cartoons once again. Uh, but then when you kind of zoom out, Vargo and that N-word guy, <laughs> they're also the sort of comedic uh, yeah, guy. the old hard of hearing. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing is he stands up and says, it's it's him, you know, whatever. And then he literally has a heart attack. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> saves uh, Ghost Dog from having to shoot him. And, Saved him a bullet. Yeah. And then Vargo stands up. And again, you know, 
for most of the movie, Vargo seemed to be kind of an idiot. He was kind of silent and saying weird things. And then, you know, he had that one moment where he talked about the poetry. And here again, yeah. yeah, the poetry war. Here again, he kind of reclaims that. He stands up with dignity and he says he's been expecting Ghost Dog and he buttons up his suit and then Ghost Dog shoots him. And he also, you know, again, kind of a dignity thing. Instead of falling over, he manages to sit back down in his chair before he dies. Yeah. And the chair, he, the chair is one of those that has, like, it can lean back for a limited (laughs) amount. So, so it it leans back, so he's not going to fall out of it. So, right. And then just like in the opening murder, when he killed the first guy, he hears something and aims his gun and it's Vargo's daughter. And again, she's, you know, uh, kind of goth and kind of unaffected. And she points out that he borrowed her book. And he then runs from the room and shoots another gangster. And then Louis comes out of a bathroom. You know, he just happened to be in the bathroom this whole time. And... <laughs> Ghost Dog shoots him in the exact same place in the shoulder. And he actually says, he's like, you just shot me in the same place you shot me before. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Ghost Dog asks where Sonny is and Louie doesn't say anything. And so Ghost Dog leaves. And now we have something that, okay, I have a lot to say about this. So Ghost Dog (laughs) is driving along in the countryside and there's a truck on the side of the road, and there are two camouflage rednecks. So when I say camouflage, they're both wearing camouflage, and they have camouflage makeup on their faces, you know, the green sort of stuff. And they have killed a bear. And so he stops and gets out, and it turns out these bears are getting rare. And, you know, one of the guys says, well... Because they're rare, if you see one, you got to shoot it right away, right? And and Ghost Dog's like, really? Because yeah. they're rare, you're going to shoot it? And, and the way he puts it, at, at some point when he's talking about the bears, I think he refers to them as these black bastards or yeah. something. I mean, yeah. he's he's clearly uh, making an allusion to well, Ghost Dog. And then they don't even make an allusion. At some point, the other guy pulls out a rifle and says, well... You, as a black guy, you know, ghost dog, you're also rare here. So he's clearly implying they might shoot him. Yeah. And uh, ghost dog then acts like he's going to get in the car, but then he turns around and kills them both. But here's my thing. I think this is the weakest point in the movie. And I think that mm-hmm. if the rest of the movie had more of these where it's just so on the nose and so, you know, stereotypical and everything – this would have been a bad movie. And yeah, you know. yeah, it's it's kind of superfluous this scene. I mean, you know, I've mentioned other places that weren't necessary to the movie, but they added something and I this scene didn't really do much for me. It seems yeah, well, it was and like I just the, find you it want offensive. to send a message called Western Union. Yeah, country. and it's offensive because like, oh, here are these rednecks and these rednecks are really racist and they're really, you know, and it's just like, oh Jesus Christ. I mean, there's nothing realistic about it there's not i mean it just uh, anyway uh so i'm just so so glad that the rest of the movie isn't like this because it would have been a terrible movie and this is just sort of the yeah. the low point so literally we could cut out this three minutes or whatever a film and it would have been a better movie and it would have not impacted the movie whatsoever because th- there's nothing the, the this little storyline 
has nothing to do with the rest of the the movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the boat on the rooftop had nothing to do, but but it th- this feels it has that feeling of something that was thrown in to uh, you know make some uh, make some points about. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, we get we get the ghost dogs, the uh, the good guy in the movie, more or less, and uh, so on. I mean, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just this one scene that really stands out for that, I yeah, think. The rest it's of the movie is very well balanced, I'd say. Yeah. So now we get a much better scene because <laughs> it's got a lot more going on, which is Louie is driving the car, you know, uh, Vargo's daughter is in the back, and Vinny, who got shot by Ghost Dog but isn't dead, is in the passenger seat. And... You know, Louie's trying to get him to a hospital. And then a cop car comes after them for speeding. And it turns out the cop is a butch female cop, a very no-nonsense, you know, uh, cop. And she's doing all sorts of orders and, you know, being sort of a jerk from their point of view. So Vinny, the wounded guy, just shoots her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Although, in this case... They're speeding to the hospital. The driver clearly tells her, look, this guy's got to get to the hospital. And right. he's clearly not in a good shape. So, But she's just dicking around. She goes over to the passenger side to talk to him. And that's when she gets shot. If she just said, okay, I'll give you an escort to the hospital, then, <laughs> you know. So this this podcast now supports shooting cops. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may be, uh, you know. It may be taking it a step to the extreme. <laughs> uh, but in this case, uh, it would have been better, you know, to follow them to the hospital and then decide right. if there was something hanky going on. <laughs> it's funny here because this is sort of where, you know, Louis is a little bit better than everybody else. I mean, obviously, he's been sort of the, the master of Ghost Dog and, you know, saved Ghost Dog and everything. So he gets on Vinny for shooting a woman. He's like, you just shot a woman. <laughs> And Vinny's like, she wanted to be equal. I made her equal by shooting her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then he promptly dies. <laughs> so, and now it's another day and Ghost Dog is walking along and he's approaching the ice cream truck. And it turns out it's just clear it's been a little while. It's been a while. He's, you know, been underground or something because the ice cream guy says he hasn't seen him in a while. And Ghost Dog then gives him the suit that he stole. And we have this whole little American French thing where he's like, oh, you can probably get the Hungarians to resize the suit for you. And then the guy says in French, I can get the Hungarians to resize the suit for me. And, you know, I I don't know. <laughs> I think this stuff gets a little bit old, but uh, okay. Then it's night and there's a full moon and Ghost Dog is walking along with his case and he encounters a silent black dog that just stares at him. And it's almost like you could think it was a ghost dog. <laughs> yeah. Which, this is the dog from the park, I think. I'm, well, 99% sure okay. it's the yeah. same dog. Then he sees this very floozy-looking woman go get out of her car and go into a corner alcohol store. And so he steals her car because he has no morals about stealing cars. And she comes out of the store with two bags of alcohol it's like boy this is gonna be some party and she's very upset that her jaguar got stolen and as he always does when he steals a car he puts a cd in the player you know he's fortunate that all the cars he steals have cd players yeah 
Although I got my first CD player in 88, so this was 99, so they, they've been pretty well established. In yeah. fact, I think DVD players might have come out in 99, if I, I'm not <laughs> sure, but oh well. Anyway, CDs were pretty much uh, de rigueur by that point, I think. Yeah, so now some experimental jazz plays while he's driving around as it's raining, and you know it's another one of those very moody things where he drives for a while and we get to see how things are. And he gets out in the rain, and he pulls out his gun, and he's at, uh, well, we figure out a Sonny's house, right? The Sonny was the last guy he needed to, to get. And there's a funny mm-hmm. little point here. They, there's no logic for it. They just do it, and it's fine. But the car, Sonny's car is too big for the garage, so the <laughs> the hood is sticking out, and the, and the you know garage door is coming down to the hood. And I just thought that was kind of funny. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it, it's one of those old long cars, like a Lincoln Town car or something. So I mean, it's it's certainly imaginable that it could be a very short garage that wouldn't fit it. But it's it is funny. I mean, I, I've never, I can't think of one I've ever seen something like that in real life. But, <laughs> but it makes perfect sense when you see it in the movie. Like, oh yeah, it's too long. <laughs> It turns out there's a gangster, sort of a guard guy in the living room. He's watching cartoons, of course. And a funny little bit here, as we'll see, is the cartoon he's watching has a character shooting bullets that go through the plumbing and then come out like a shower to go after a guy. And so that's going to be meaningful uh, in the moment. <laughs> you know, I I did not catch that. <laughs> you know, I wonder how many of these cartoons are thematically yeah probably they the, all are something but it's the one i really noticed yeah so while he's watching the tv ghost dog cuts the tv cable and then the gangster starts fiddling with the tv and this is interesting ghost dog puts a strip of tape on the window and then he shoots through it and i assume the idea is to keep the window mm, right. from shattering um, i think so yeah. yeah the tape would do that there's an old trick you can do where if you put a piece of tape on a balloon, you can st- right, right. like stick a needle That's, into it. Yeah, I did that as a magic balloon. trick back when I was a magician. Yeah. <laughs> so, but even though he's, you know, shot this guy through the main window and everything, he now goes to the garage. And we now see, I mean, this is a setup earlier as we talked about. Sonny likes, you know, sort of hip hop music. And so he's mm. listening to Public Enemy in his bathroom and, you know, he's singing along with a whole bunch of the lyrics. Oh, yeah. And this, this is what calls back to that, that earlier cartoon, which is in the garage. So somehow Ghost Dog knows exactly where Sonny is. And he finds some tools and disassembles some of the plumbing. And he then, you know, points the gun up. And shoots Sonny through the plumbing, through his sink, just like in the cartoon. Right. <laughs> yeah, from where he's standing in the basement, he is a perfect straight shot upwards uh, uh, so that he can get the red dot of the laser pointer right in yeah. uh, you know, Sonny's face. The funny thing is, right after that, right after he shoots up through the plumbing and takes out Sonny, you can see that the faucet hangs over the sink so however sunny was looking down into the drain the faucet should have been blocking anything that was sent <laughs> straight up the drain so it's it's a mystery yeah i don't think it makes a lot of sense uh but you know he's killed sunny next day he goes back to the ice cream truck during the day 
And the ice cream guy is freaked out because some white guy whose arm was in a sling came by. So, of course, this is Louie who goes yeah, to all get shot in the shoulder. He communicates this by, by panto- pantomiming a sling, yeah, because he still speaks yeah. French. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. He's also upset because, you know, previously he'd been announcing to everyone you can eat ice cream because the the people on the radio said ice cream was healthy. And the radio just had a article this morning saying that ice cream is bad again. So he's upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> he mentions it's because of all the sugar in it, yeah. which, uh, which is actually uh, fairly accurate. <laughs> yeah. But also the idea that every other day, you know, the radio is going to say, this is bad for you. Oh, it's good for you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So uh, Ghost Dog goes to the back of the truck and he's unloading his stuff into his case. And then he's really upset to see that the ice cream guy has a gun in his waistband and he takes it away from him. And he puts all of his cash and such in the case and locks it. And the lock is on a necklace or or the key is a necklace around his neck. And he gives the necklace to the ice cream guy. He clearly knows, you know, that it's the end for him. And he wants to give the ice cream guy his cash and, and stuff. And he tells the ice cream guy about Louie and how he saved his life and, and everything. And how a samurai must always stay loyal to his boss. And, you know, sometimes you got to stick with the ancient ways. And then Perlene, the little girl, shows up. And, you know, we haven't talked about it too much. But anyway, the, the, I think the actress did a really good job on this. You know, she's a child actress. Who, oh, yeah. Uh, she doesn't come across as overly cute. You know, I think she's believable uh-huh. and, and a good character in the film. And she's brought that Rashomon book that he gave her back, and he asked her what she thought. And she says ancient Japan was a weird place, which is she's replicating what Vargo's daughter said in that er, that mm. first assassination scene. And now he gives her his Hagakuri samurai book. That's the one that he's been reading from, you know, throughout the film. And he asked her to read it and tell him what she thinks. And now we hear Louie calling out to him. And Louis is standing in the middle of the street. His legs are kind of splayed out. You know, he's ready for a gunfight. But he's also got his, you know, arm in a sling and all that. And Ghost Dog, you know, again, kind of on the nose, says, this is our final shootout scene. And Louis pulls out a gun. And Ghost Dog says he understands that Louis needs to avenge the death of his bosses. And the ice cream guy and the girl are watching. You know, the, the ice cream guy puts his arms around the girl, but he doesn't, like, turn her away or anything. So she right. sees all of this. And now Ghost Dog opens his coat to show Louie that he has a gun, and Louie shoots him. And then he pulls out the gun, and Louie shoots him again. And the ice cream guy starts screaming because he knows that Ghost Dog had, had unloaded that gun. So he's screaming that it's an unloaded gun, but he's screaming in French, so Louie probably mm-hmm. can't understand him. So all the you know, Ghost Dog did all this just to go Louie into shooting him. Yeah. And Ghost Dog then he's been shot three times, so you know, realistically he's on the ground dead. But anyway, <laughs> he tosses the gun, he walks towards Louie, Louie shoots him again, and now Ghost Dog pulls out the Rashomon book and he walks towards Louie. And he says Louis's going to run his own clan since everyone else is gone because he's killed them all. And Louis says not exactly, which will become important in a moment. 
Then Ghost Dog finally succumbs to all his, you know, gunshot wounds and he falls over and he tells Louie it's okay, but he does hold out the book and asks him to read the Rashomon book and later he can tell Ghost Dog what he thinks. <laughs> Probably won't happen. But Louie takes the gun. I think he's talking about the uh, the afterlife. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So Louie uh, takes the book and he runs away and then we have this weird little moment where the little girl, Perlene, picks up the empty gun that Ghost Dog had thrown off, and she shoots it at Louie. It just clicks. But the moment she shoots it at him, he stumbles as if it had actually hit him. Mm-hmm. He then gets in a car in the you know back seat, and Vargo's daughter is there, and she takes the Rashomon book from him and says it's her book, and he doesn't believe her, but... This is kind of this cycle of the film, right? It started out with her with this book, and she then gave it to uh, Ghost Dog, and now she's gotten it back. Now yeah, it's got a couple blood stains on it now. <laughs> yeah, otherwise perfectly intact. And now this is a very interesting moment. I'd be curious if you notice this. She like puts on these sunglasses and then very authoritatively tells the driver they can go, and they then drive off. And my take on this is. And this gets back to what what Louis said just a moment ago. She's now the head of the mob. Ah, see, I I noticed that she was the one who controlled the driver because Louis gave him a couple orders that he ignored, and I was wondering at first what was going on with that until she ended up saying something and he listened. But uh, but it it hadn't occurred to me that she may have somehow become head of the mob. So, uh, yeah, that's quite possible plausible i uh that, that could be i'm not sure by what merit or you know how how that would work or what the line of succession is <laughs> well basically everybody else got killed mind. so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know who her employees are because there doesn't seem to be anyone left but uh yeah. <laughs> yeah but she uh you wouldn't think she would have much experience in the way of uh you know the contract well and she's been so spacey throughout the movie right she never reacts to anything she never has any emotion but that's one of the reasons this last moment is impactful because suddenly she's authoritative suddenly she's presenting herself in a way that we just haven't seen before this mm-hmm. and then we yeah, see uh, interesting then we see the little girl, you know, uh, Perlene on the floor of her kitchen reading the Haga Curry book, which is, you know, <laughs> way above what she should be reading. Right? <laughs> and my take on this, just like we, I think we just saw, you know, Vargo's daughter become the head of the mob. I think the little girl is going to become the next ghost dog, right? I mean, she's reading the stuff he read and she's very influenced by him, so... Who knows? Maybe mm-hmm. maybe she's an assassin now, and maybe we'll get a movie about her. We don't know, because that's the <laughs> end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's... Well, first of all, let's just talk about the movie itself, right? I mean, in terms of um, actors and story and everything, I mean, what what? how did you feel about it? I really, I didn't have high hopes for it because, like I said, I had seen that Dead Man years ago and didn't care for it. And uh, I went into this with low expectations, and that's perhaps that's why 
it was such a pleasant surprise because I just, uh, I was interested in it the whole way through. I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't, I don't think I was bored once. Uh, you know, there was that, the scene with the bear that you mentioned that was a little unnecessary. I were just, you know, it wasn't, uh, if, if it had fit in better somehow, I wouldn't mind it as much, but it just, it seemed, seemed like it was just there just for, I don't know, just to be like a little extra thing for him to accomplish before he met his final. Yeah. I mean, my problem with that scene is just like, oh, you know, this kind of people are evil. And so we're going to represent them in a very stereotypical way and show that they're evil and then kill them. Oh, God. Um, but yeah, what I, I feel like this is. So there are people who say you can't have a great movie without a great script. And that may be mm -hmm. usually the case, but I think it's not always true. And this is a good example where, again, you could have taken the exact same script. And if you had put different actors in these roles and maybe a different director, it would just be a dumb independent film with way too, you know, obvious things in it, right? The script mm. is not in itself particularly good. What's good is the execution. What's good is the acting. What's good is, you know, um, Forrest Whitaker bringing this sort of soul to this role that could have, you know, another actor just would have been something completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very, I mean, none of the actors stood out as bad to me. I mean, I don't have a great sense for that <laughs> to start with, but uh, um, there wasn't anybody that do just like made me cringe with their performance. And I mean, the comic relief guy was supposed to be comic relief and <laughs> he was. So uh, um, yeah. And Sonny was some comic relief when mm -hmm. he spoke about how much he loved rap just because it was so unexpected <laughs> for me all the year. Old school Italian mobster type, right. type. but even yeah. that, I mean, that could have been really bad, and I think it was it was fine. But it was such a, it's just one of those kind of obvious. Oh, we're gonna have this, you know, gangster guy also like rap, and uh, you know, you have to pull it off. Well yeah, enough. it's it's kind of a it's kind of an easy joke, but it also uh, he 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 pulled it off well. I thought, yeah, uh, he he put some real. Uh, uh, passion into it, I guess you could say. <laughs> and certainly in the later on, when we see him like doing his, all his little, you know, smooth moves and you know, shuffling his feet and mm. you know, his little mm. dance he does towards the end there. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was fun. Just, just the whole thing was, uh, even like the scenes that in a lot of movies I would have been bored with, uh, where he's just driving past, mm -hmm. you know, block after block of buildings, uh, I don't know if it was just good location scouting or what it was, but just everything in this movie kept me interested. So, yeah. uh, and I did not expect that necessarily going in. I didn't really have, I didn't know what to expect, uh, <laughs> but I didn't have high hopes. Right. So I guess we can define it as uh, worth watching. Uh, yeah. And, but now we have the question of, is it a Rashomon film? We have the Rashomon book being passed around throughout. I mean, I have a theory here, but I want to I want to hear what you have to say about this. Um, 
You know, to me, it didn't uh, it didn't stand out as being the type of story, or even like the the main element that we think of with Rashomon is the different perspectives telling different versions of the story. And here, I think we pretty much just got the the one version mm. of that. Now, I'm not sure in the flashbacks, it seems like that the guy who was beating up the younger ghost dog both pointed the gun at him at one point and then at Louis later. So I guess maybe there could be some ambiguity mm-hmm. there, but if so, it's not played up in the movie and it's not really ever... It doesn't seem like it would be particularly crucial, even if it was somehow a discrepancy. But right. I mean, in that sense, I don't. I didn't see any of that uh, from Rashomon. I didn't see that ambiguity. Now there is the obvious Rashomon connection, which is the book, <laughs> right. the story that it's based on is is right in there. Um, and clearly, just from the quotes they pick from uh, that uh, Hagakure. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the quotes uh, I thought were were pretty interesting quotes. They're definitely a whole different mindset than what we may be used to. Um, so certainly, I think the samurai, the history of the samurai, probably the samurai movie genre, uh, probably did have an influence on this. But as far as the actual story of Rashomon, I didn't see the. I didn't yeah. see that. Well, though. I think it, so. I totally agree, and I think your last point is really important. So, I think the the reason they're passing around the Rashomon book in this is is not because it's a Rashomon story. They so said there's not multiple stories. Um, it doesn't match that at all. But as we talked about with Peter Tasker, I mean, Kurosawa sort of recreated the samurai myth, right? And I think that. If he hadn't done that, this film wouldn't exist, right? The hmm. that that this is really a film about samurai and the samurai ethos, and that came about because of Kurosawa, and that's why they are referencing Rashomon throughout. And so, you know, it's it, so, so I, I would pull back and say it's not inspired by Rashomon, but it is inspired by Kurosawa. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, it, so you're saying, if I'm understanding right, that that Kurosawa, without his movies, uh, just the whole samurai history might be much more obscure than yeah. it otherwise is today. Yeah. It, it would be lesser known, at least. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. I, I have, I've only seen the one... Yeah, I've only seen Rashomon so far, but uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll be seeing a few more before yeah, all we'll more coming up. Yep. So, okay, well, we think you should watch this film if you can find it. <laughs> if you have HBO Max, or you yeah. can find a, a copy of a DVD online. I found mine on eBay, right. and uh, while the Korean subtitles were a bit annoying, <laughs> otherwise it uh, it worked fine. It played perfectly. On a region one player. <laughs> okay, well, so we are done with our set of Rashomon films. So next up is more Doctor Who. <laughs> so I'm sure oh, uh, people alrighty. listening to us for Kurosawa may not be so interested in Doctor Who, but 
come back because we're going to do more Kurosawa in the future. But uh, we need to finish season three. <laughs> so we'll see you then. The way the samurai is found in death. Meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily. Every day when one's body and mind are at peace, one should meditate upon being ripped apart by arrows, rifles, spears, and swords. Being carried away by surging waves, being thrown into the midst of a great fire, being struck by lightning, being shaken to death by a great earthquake, falling from thousand-foot cliffs, dying of disease, or committing seppuku at the death of one's master. And every day without fail, one should consider himself as dead. This is a substance of the way of the samurai. In the Kamigata area, they have a sort of tiered lunchbox they use for a single day when flower viewing. Upon returning, they throw them away, trampling them underfoot. The end is important in all things.